you've already attracted them. They've already made a decision. You've spent exponentially more money to acquire them. And so now how do you keep them, grow them, get them to buy more frequently? So if you sell something that, you know, uh, that they need to replace uh, once a year, how do you get them to replace it twice a year? Um, If they use one of them, how do you get them to buy two? Even something like a donut shop, like they come in on Sundays and they buy a croissant or they buy muffins. How do you get them to bring those to work on Wednesday for the staff meeting? Like, it's just, how do you get more out of the people who have already said, I'm interested in doing business with you? Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, if you could if you could identify one superpower that would take you, your company, your brand, your career to the next level, what would it be? Other than just being an interesting question to look at by itself, there are probably many ways to answer it. However, for me, it can probably be best summed up by the title of the book written by my next guest. And that title is Growth IQ. Now we've all heard of IQ and most recently EQ, but for me, the leaders that stand out, the ones that end up dominating a marketplace or forging a path forward that entire industries come to follow, growth IQ is by far the most common superpower. So what is it? Good question. According to my next guest, Tiffany Bova, global customer growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, growth IQ is the ability to switch out of business as usual. Tune out the noise and hone into the best strategy or combination of strategies to take your organization to the next level of growth. As Tiffany says, and you will hear her say it, when it comes to growth, it is never just one thing as tantalizing and seductive as that notion is. There is never just one single factor or strategy that's going to get you onto the leading edge of the next frontier. However, growth is far less complicated than most people make it out to be. In fact, most growth efforts can be categorized into just one of 10 growth paths or a combination of one of 10 growth paths. Now, if you want to know what those full 10 growth paths are, I cannot recommend highly enough you go out and buy buy Tiffany's book. Today, we're going to cover off a couple. I had so many other questions about her path and her journey and the future of customer experience that there was no way we could get through all 10 of the paths that she talks about. However, go out, get the book. It is packed full of case studies from companies like Red Bull, Marvel, Starbucks on exactly how they have used each one of those 10 to successfully grow into the next chapter of their business story. So that's at an organizational level, growth IQ. However, for me, there's another level. And that's something that Tiffany also has in spades. Growth IQ, as well as being an organizational skill, it's also an individual skill. It's a finely tuned radar. It's the ability to tune into trends, distinguish between opportunities and pure distractions, identify patterns that will go on to rewrite the playing field, not now, but 18 months from now. And then, and this is important, 
turn this intel into usable strategies and compelling stories, which will then illuminate a path forward for everybody that comes behind you. Now that sounds like a tall order, because it should, because it is. And that is why it's the superpower of every great influencer. Now, when I first met Tiffany, she was she was fresh off the back of launching Growth IQ. In addition to launching the accompanying top 100 iTunes ranked podcast, What's Next, in which she interviews just some of her inner circle. I loved it when she said this, just a few of my inner circle, like Dan Pink, Ariana Huffington, Seth Godin, the list goes on. And it's, to be honest, it's well worth pausing me right now and just going, adding that to your playlist. What impressed me most when I met her wasn't her credentials, which are massively extensive. Having also been VP, Distinguished Analyst and Research Fellow with Gartner before moving on to Salesforce. It also wasn't her laser-focused approach to solving the growth challenges of some of the world's top-tier firms. What impressed me was her ability to peer into the clutter, into the never-ending predictions, statistics and trends associated with growth and translate them with a level of certainty, clarity, and humor that only ever comes from having done the work. Now, since then, I've had the privilege of sharing coffee with her on a couple of occasions, and my admiration for her many influenced superpowers, I'm all about superpowers today, keeps on growing. So what do we cover in this episode that will enable you to shift your growth IQ as an influenced superpower? Where do I where do I begin in this conversation hidden deep at the back of an empty room while she was part of Salesforce World Tour? We went on to cover off why growth is not as complicated as people make out and the most underutilized strategy that most businesses miss. Clue, it involves maximizing the people and the resources you already have, which, as we all know, is always by far the best and least expensive strategy. How to turn complexity into clarity by breaking down trends into those worth drawing attention to, i.e. investing in, and pure distractions. Why the most transformative thing going on in the marketplace today is not technology, it's the customer. How to step out from behind the brand and the data and use storytelling to bring strategy to life. Now this one is massive for any leaders out there struggling to get traction behind a necessary change or a new horizon learning how to take the intel, the information that you know is valuable, and turn it into a compelling story. Why competitive collaborations will be the next growth buzz phrase, especially when it comes to influencing an entire customer journey. How developing a symphony, I love that phrase, symphony of feedback is the key to any kind of mastery. And why the day our Fitbits talk to our scales and lock our refrigerators we should all just pack up and go home. Couldn't agree more. So sit back or stride out if you're a podcast walker and get ready to listen to somebody who literally lives at the intersection between influence and business growth, the incredible Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the podcast, Tiffany Bova. Thank you for having me. You are very welcome. We are hiding away in a ballroom in Sydney at the very back. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> um, I'm going to kick off the, the way that I always kick the podcast off, and that is to ask the question, do you consider yourself to be an introvert 
or an extrovert? And the reason I ask that question, and for you, it's interesting because you, you've spent a lifetime in data and research, and yet you're also this incredible storyteller. And I find that people have this myth that unless I am an introvert, uh, sorry, unless I am an extrovert, I can't influence, I can't make an impact, I can't stand up, I can't take to the stage, put my hand up, whatever the story is. And so I'm always interested. Do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? So I would say I am absolutely a type A extrovert. And uh, lots of that came from sports early. Work was sales, which tends to be more sort of competitive extrovert. When I uh, started working in, uh, in the sort of analyst research thinking game uh, when I was with Gartner. So I was there a decade, but the first two years I really struggled. I didn't actually know how to sit and think in that way because salespeople, uh, sales leaders, we think very differently. <laughs> it's much more gut. We, yes, we use numbers, but we're not that analytical. Like, And you're so, I find we, we think, I say we, I can include myself in that. We think in motion. You think in motion, you think on the fly, you think as part of a dialogue, you think yes. with the energy of a dynamic as opposed to on your own in a silo. Yes. So switching from being out with customers and with my sales team, and I remember a very vivid story of it was my very first day and it happened to be the kickoff for the year for, for the company. And so it was in Florida and uh, there was two massive ballrooms. So one ballroom was all the analysts and the other ballroom was all the sales team. And we were maybe two ballrooms apart, right, from a people perspective. So you have to think there was maybe 800 people in the analyst room and there was probably a little bit more on the, on the, in the sales room. I'm sitting in the very last row because I never sit at front. <laughs> Hence why we're in the corner in the back in a ballroom. But I so sit in the back row and our head of research who's up there you know, getting everyone all excited about the year and everything. And so he's showing slides and he tells this joke. And like the whole room laughs. And I did not get the joke at all. It was like about a philosopher. It was about, you know, it was very academic. It was a little dry. And not 10 seconds later, right, I hear the theme from Rocky sort of going off two doors down in the sales room. And You're I, like, I should be in that I room. I should be in that room. So it, it's interesting because I think scientifically people say that you can't sort of have two personalities in that way. But when I am not sort of in my extroverted personality, I actually enjoy being an introvert. So it, it's, people would not agree with that, but uh, I like to try to think that I can go and be a little more zen when I'm not in my extroverted personality. And I think that I often come across, not necessarily analysts, but that personality type where they have access to reams and reams of incredible information. And the belief is that, well, I've got all of this, m my information is better. So I don't necessarily need to add any panache to it. I don't learn the skills of storytelling or step up and um, and be heard with it because m my information is better. I've got incredible information and therefore people will seek me out. Have you, have you come across that struggle between the best information versus the best storytelling? So I would say I have been told that my superpower <laughs> is the ability to string multiple data points together in a cohesive story. 
So what I was masterful at doing was taking this very rich research content that was being put out by where other analysts of where I worked. And what's the story for the person sitting in the audience? If I was speaking to a chief marketing officer or a head of sales uh, or a chief information officer or whomever it was that the audience was full of, how do I take this sort of very dry data and make it interesting and pull them into the story of why am I telling this? And so each is kind of like this little individual pearl and I have to create this necklace of this story to get them engaged, to lean into what it is I'm trying to say. And I'd say early in me doing that, 80% of the content was not mine because I wasn't a researcher. Like I had to find my way to say something I thought people would think was interesting and unique and research worthy. So in the first couple of years, it was like, how do I take the top 10 things we say and how do I make it relevant to the masses versus what you've just described of people would seek that out. Uh, And so lots of people appreciated my ability to tie things together and make them relevant to the audience uh, instead of just dropping a nugget of a statistic and then saying, now I need you to take that statistic, apply it to your role. What does it mean to you? What's the impact in the short, medium, and long term? Which that's a lot to ask somebody when you're on stage for 40 minutes, sort of tossing out all this information at them. They can't formulate it that quickly. So you have to bring them on this journey. So I think that um, that, w- that very skill allowed me to be uh, sort of to make my name, if you will, in an, in an industry that I was not known to be in, a la research. I think that one sentence is a highly underutilized sentence, which is what this means for you is. What this means, because if you imagine how much information we go into a room with, we, we pick up a book, how much information is running through our brains. We don't have often the bandwidth or the context or the time to figure out, you know, this is an incredible story. What does, what does this mean for my world? What could this, how should I apply this? How should I pivot on this? So I think that that one sentence, the ability to be able to use that one sentence, what this means for you is is one of, if people could just adopt that one sentence when they're presenting or when they're explaining a concept, would make all the difference in the world as to whether people were actually able to action. Well, I think even as leaders, you know, you usually make the assumption um, that the people that are in a presentation tend to be at a management layer. You don't have to be the CEO, but you tend to be at a management layer. And one of the very last slides I give now is, So what does this mean to you? What are you going to do differently on Monday morning because of this information you've heard? Because if you're not going to pivot even just a little, make one change, then you've wasted your day. That's sort of one. But two, as a manager, and it doesn't matter if you manage a team of three people, five, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, depends on, you know, how big your company is or how much responsibility you have. I believe the role of a leader now is really being the chief storyteller because it's your job to get people to understand why should they want to come to work every day? What what does being the receptionist, how important is the receptionist to the experience that a customer has with that particular brand? If you work in a dentist's office or a doctor's office or anything, like they're the first line of defense. And if they're in a bad mood, then the customer's sitting in there going, God, this is just terrible. So it doesn't matter what happens after that. And so if that receptionist doesn't understand that their role is probably the most important, it's the first impression that someone gets when they walk into a law firm or anything like that, uh, they then feel empowered to go, I know the role I play. And I think as as people, we want to know, are we contributing? What's our role? I want to be passionate. I want to believe in who I'm following, you know, and who's bringing me along on this 
career journey, that's very different than going to work and having a job. And so I think, you know, for leaders um, becoming sort of the storytellers of why um, people should care and also what their what role they have and they play in the success of the business goes so far in getting people committed towards uh, sometimes some very hard lifting from a corporate perspective. So let's let's flip to growth. Let's okay. go to growth and and growth IQ. You've you've been on the inside and the outside by by Gartner and and now obviously with Salesforce and some of some incredible growth journeys. And you've said or I've read you you're saying that you get asked a lot about one of the main questions you get asked is what's the one thing? What's the one thing that drives growth? So yeah, what's yeah, your answer? Yeah, so it, it was interesting because um, going back to your very first question, an extrovert almost has no business writing a book, I feel like, right? Because I want to talk about it. I don't want to put it on a piece of paper. Don't make me sit still <laughs> this long. Oh my God, right? And so when I went on this journey of writing Growth IQ, I had to sort of go back in my memory banks of all the conversations I'd had with executives from all over the world of varying size organizations where they would they were struggling with, they wouldn't use the term potentially growth, but they might say, oh, my sales numbers are slowing. Like, what can I do this quarter? What can I do in order to double the size? Or what can I do to expand into North America? Or I want to go into APAC, or I want to go into uh, EMEA, or I want to launch a new product. Like it was, they wanted to do sort of one thing. And they were looking at me for the one thing they'd have to do to accomplish the one thing they want to do. And when I looked back in preparing sort of what did I want to say in this book, I realized the one thing about growth was it's never one thing. And so that really became the backbone of the book was it was about these combinations of things that companies did in order to be uh, improve the likelihood of success in whatever it was they wanted to do, right? Expand into a new market, launch a new product, uh, double their sales force, um, or increase revenue. But in order to do those things, if you want to launch a new product, well, then you need to know, well, what products would your customers want? And then should you manufacture it yourself or should you outsource that? Well, that's six, five questions right there. So the answer may be, yes, launch a new product. But it can't be, yes, go launch a new product, go forth and be free. They have to figure out sort of what is the what is the thing that they need to do. So that would be, uh, and I think that made people very uncomfortable because everyone's looking for the quick fix. And when it comes to business growth in this environment today, with speed, with technology and consumer expectations, uh, it's just not one thing. You've also said growth is not as complicated as most people make it out. And in the book, I know you broke it down into 10 you know, 10 strategies, 10 levers that people can people can pull up on. And if you haven't got a copy of the book, by the way, go get it. It's it's just, I wish we had time to go into every single case study and break it down. Um, but we don't. And so which, which one would you say out of the 10, just sort of gut feel, which one would you say is the most underutilized or the most underestimated strategy of the 10? Oh, that's a good one because uh, I think that... I was going to answer it different until you just said those last two words. Hmm. All right. So I'd say that probably there's two that are the most underutilized. One is selling more to the existing customer base you have. I think is like you've already sort of attracted them. They've already made a decision. You've spent exponentially more money to acquire them. And so now how do you keep them, grow them, get them to buy more frequently from you? So if you sell something that, you know, uh, that they need to replace 
uh, once a year? How do you get them to replace it twice a year? If if they um, if they use one of them, how do you get them to buy two? You know, even something like a donut shop, like they come in on Sundays and they buy a croissant or they buy muffins or they buy a biscuit, whatever it is. How do you get them to bring those to work on Wednesday for the staff meeting? Like, it's just, how do you get more out of the people who have already said, I'm interested in doing business with you? That one's very underutilized because I think people get very distracted by going and attracting new. New customers. New logo, the marketing dollars, like all of those things. Actually, just diving in on that one very quickly, the one of the things that I've noticed seems to be, and I'd be interested in your take on this, seems to be taking off at the moment is the rise of membership models. Some form of here is my credit card. You have my credit card on file. Charge it. So I'm a, you know, I buy toilet paper that way. I buy nappies that way. You have my credit card. Every month I need the same amount. Just pop it on my credit card. Don't talk to me about it. Bring it to my front door. Don't have me think about it. I've also noticed that companies are starting to use that maybe not membership model strategy, but also, you know, this time last year you bought X. This year, let's just take a clothing store, for example. This year, that designer has come out with this new look that you might be interested. We've also got these shoes that go with those pants that you bought before. So have you noticed companies starting to do it more and more, or is it still something that that could have a lot more take-up? Oh, it could have a lot more take-up, right? But you, there's no way to do what you just described without technology. No. You know right. I mean? Ultimately, yes, obviously. Now I work for Salesforce, so there's something out there that can help you. But you first have to make the decision that that's what you want to do. And the story in the book that I actually used, I was sitting next to a gentleman on a plane. He had a textile company in downtown Los Angeles. It was a couple million turnover. Another company bought him. He was still the CEO, but he was now part of a larger conglomerate. Now the you know the CEO of the of the bigger company said, "Just go do your deal, do a deal with Amazon, and in the U.S. go do the deal with Walmart to sort of sell textiles." And he said, "That's my growth strategy." And of course, I was working on the book. He was reading over my shoulder, and then he asked me the question. So I had to close my laptop and you know sort of give 30 minutes of of advice but it actually made it into the book because it highlighted this very thing where I I looked at him and I said well okay but one thing about growth this is not one thing so doing those two deals is not going to give you growth tell me about your existing customer base well you know Tiffany we have about a hundred thousand customers I'm like my god you know like small businesses would kill for that kind of base like what are you doing with those hundred thousand like how many bought from you last year don't know how many bought from you last quarter don't know how many so you see someone buys a large volume maybe they've made curtains so maybe you should start adding patterns to buying fabric so you can bring it together what if you start you know sponsoring clubs of like sewing clubs and getting and i'm giving him all that he's looking at me like what are you talking about right he's just like no 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 we're running hard and fast and it's Walmart and Amazon, right? And so this, that was really the trigger for, but he had nothing in his system. So I said, you know, listen, bring in a couple of interns, you know, go get something. <laughs> it can't be an Excel spreadsheet and have them clean up the database. And you might be lucky if you have 5,000 or so that are sort of still valid. That's still a really good number and start from there. So to your point, I think anyone who's listening to this that has a book of business, you're not a startup and you have nobody, and you've done business with someone at some period in time, that is where you have untapped gold. And I find it fascinating when, which I'm sure many uh, listening will feel the same way, is I don't hear from a brand for a really long time. And I make an assumption that they must have hired a new marketing person because all of a sudden the newsletter starts back up again. (laughs) 
You know? I, I know exactly you know? what you mean. Yeah. Thank you for your business. I'm like, okay, well, I haven't bought from you in about two years, right? And so someone goes, nope, we're going to go into the base. And it lasts for a little bit, and then it falls off again, right? And so I think that that's one, going back to your original question, that I, there's tons of opportunity. The other is optimizing sales. People tend to think, let's go back to those, what's the one thing? that When it comes to growth, people would normally say, spend more marketing dollars, Hire more salespeople or cut costs. Let's put cut costs aside because it's not covered in the book at all, nor is M&A. It's just really about top-line growth. Is they'd say, let me hire more salespeople because with every head I hire, I get another million dollars, whatever the number is. And I'd be like, yes, but 50% of your sellers aren't even hitting quota. And the average quota attainment is 75%. So you got a lot of more, you got a lot more room before you're tapped to a place where you still, you still have capacity you have 25%, 30% capacity in your sellers now. Like, how do you make them produce more and then hire some more? But if you just keep hiring, you're just getting sort of 70% performance instead of figuring out you're never going to get 100%. But if you just move everyone a couple percentage points. So those are the two that really have the biggest impact short-term, require little asset investment. Now, if you're talking sort of, you know, a longer view look of having the greatest impact, it's the first chapter in customer experience, which by far is, that's why it's the first chapter, because I'm like, that has to be a combination of every other path. And I ended the book with sort of uh, purpose over profit, kind of the social conscious angle of, of the business of businesses just to be good in our societies and our, you know, in our communities and sort of raise everybody up. And so I bookended the book with that very on purpose because I think that that last one is one that is just starting now to come to the forefront of the conversations with new marketing and advertising campaigns and things like that. Uh, and the first, so you start with the customer from an experience standpoint and then you end with a, a much broader sort of societal view. And I, that's why I bookended the book that way. Just taking that very last bit, I'm going to go down the middle in a second, but yep. taking that very last bit, going back to membership models, which is a current obsession in case you haven't noticed. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, the, the nappy one that I mentioned and the toilet paper one that I mentioned is the reason that got me in in the first place was that social purpose piece, that both of those gave a percentage of profits to clean water or to um, maternal health rates. So I think that definitely that that purpose piece as a as a as a funnel in is an is an incredible sales point. But tapping into the customer customer experience was actually where I was gonna I was gonna take you next. You've talked about the the CX imperative and the prediction that the experience is gonna become the product. Can you tell tell me more about that? I know you've talked about Nike and a number of different examples. So Clayton Christensen wrote a book, it, it's two books ago now, because he's just launched another one. Uh, he obviously wrote the famous uh, Innovator's Dilemma, and, that, and he wrote one, Competing Against Luck. And, and his concept was that every business satisfies a job that needs to be done. So you hire a yard guy to do your yard. Like you, uh, you know, go to a hairdresser and they're going to cut your hair. Like, it, you know, I want to jump in a taxi it's going to take me from point A to point B. So that job. So why do people take in, you know, depending on where you're listening to this in the world, do they take an Uber over a taxi? Because the job is the same. So now you have to be making a decision based on something else. So I personally will stand on a street corner as taxis drive by waiting for my Uber. So now I've made a conscious decision that the job I need is to get from point A to point B, but I'm willing to Stand there for two, three, four, five minutes, 
potentially, in the cold. <laughs> During surge pricing, which for those of you who don't know what that is, Uber will say, you know, at certain times of day, it'll cost you a dollar. At other times of day, it'll cost you a dollar twenty, even though it's the same ride. So there's this surge on um, what is happening from a pricing perspective. So I'm not only willing to wait, I'm willing to spend more money for the exact same job. So why is that? For me, it's totally experience-based. The app is very easy. I can rate someone. I can see who it is. I can see how many rides they've given. I can see what their you know rating is. If there's a problem, I it's very easy for me to ask for a refund or do whatever. The second is it connects directly into my expense report. I don't have to turn in receipts anymore. And I don't have to have a currency, the currency in the country I'm in because I'm all over the place, so I never have the cash. And the third for me is someone will know where I was last. That's totally experience-based because the job is the same. And so that's what that comment is about people are starting to make, consumers are starting to make decisions about a brand over another. Not that this hasn't been happening forever, right? The Four Seasons is a hotel just like, you know, the Motel 6 is. Both are going to satisfy a job. <laughs> but there's a very certain demographic that will say, I will spend more for the experience I get at that hotel, even though sleeping in a room... <laughs> It's the same, right? And so uh, I think we've done it in our consumer life. So more and more, I think it's it's making its way into um, the business life. So I know I know you believe that the most transformative thing going on in the marketplace today is not technology; it's actually the customer. Now, firstly, why why is that? And secondly, how does tracking that? How does tracking that journey, that customer journey, help you break down trends? I'm fascinated because you. You seem to have this radar where you're able to look at all of these trends and go, right, that one's worth paying attention to. That one's a distraction or seems to be a distraction for the time being. So how do you combine those two worlds? And that might be a, a wholly complicated question. So my concept on this is that we're all consumers day to day. And we don't leave that consumer persona at the door when we show up to work. And so when I say consumers, customers are far more disruptive than technology, it's because we're the ones as consumers that say, what do you mean you don't have an app? What do you mean I can't pay with tap? What do you mean I can't order online and I can't get a subscription for it? What do you mean I can't order and it won't, I can't tell you what time it should show up? Or I was in a hotel last night. What do you mean you need my credit card for the third time? You already, like, I gave it to you when I booked it. I gave it to you when I arrived. How do I need to give it to you when I leave? So exactly, right? And so we now have this expectation because of some of these other brands where when you hear from people saying, I don't want to be Uberized or Airbnbized or Amazonized, it doesn't have to do with them individually. It has to do with the, the mental model that they actually compete on. So, you know, Amazon wins because they say it's in stock. I can ship it right away. You can have it same day. You can pay. You can use your American Express points. You can use the app. And it doesn't matter, like, if I'm on my my phone, my iPad, or my desktop, my cart follows me, right? And so the experience is seamless. So then you go, well, wait a minute, in business, God, I'm just trying to order copy paper. And it's like, I have to get three requisitions. And when is it coming? And do I have to, oh my God, I have to pay for shipping. And it becomes this problem. So I think for brands, the challenge is, is that consumers are demanding more from them. I want that kind of consumer experience, whether I'm in a business environment or I'm in a consumer environment. And so the lines between B2B and B2C for me, so you know, business to consumer or business to business for me, has blended to what I call B2E or business to everything, everyone, every experience. 
and it has everything to do with it just needs to be seamless. It's like you spend all this time driving someone to your website and then they get to your website and it's 42 clicks. I mean, that is so 2005, like literally, you know, I was selling websites, website design and, and domain name registration in 2000. And it was like below the fold, right? Like you had to have it above the fold and it should be two clicks to the cart. And like that stuff we were doing 19 years ago and people still struggle with. Now the problem is pop-up ads and, you know, you need this and you could stop the video. And like, I'm just trying to read an article and everyone thinks starts coming at me that it it's... Uh, it's uh, the user experience, design thinking, putting the customer at the center, making it super easy for someone to engage with you and your brand. But more importantly, we sort of do two things. We make stuff and we sell stuff. So you got to make it easy to buy. So that's that whole, the consumer is now far more demanding. And, and, if, and if you really want to dig into it, right, there's five generations now in the workforce, the millennial generation most definitely, not alone and not exclusively, expects this very mobile digital experience with a socially conscious angle. They're very demanding. And so the brands that are doing well, and you can see very established brands, Nike, Levi's, and others starting to try to reconnect back with a socially conscious message and making it very easy and an engaged experience online and offline. You see these big brands making these kinds of investments just for this reason, right? To keep up with the smaller brands that don't have all the history and legacy uh, that, that makes it more complicated to do what I just said. And is that is that the filter you run things through? You know, because I I think one of your superpowers is one of your many superpowers is that you are able to firstly identify, like I said, trends that are worth paying attention to and those that are a distraction. A CEO friend of mine um, describes it as tuning out, and I think it was Elon Musk that said this first, tuning tuning out the noise in order to tune into the signal. You have an incredible ability to be able to do that. And so is that the filter? I'm just curious, is your process? Do you look at all these trends through the filter of customer experience, through the filter of customer behavior? What are people naturally going to want to do in order to see if it's a trend that's going to take hold or not? Yeah, so I, I would say that um, over the last maybe four years that's happened for me, um, and now, obviously, the last three years, I work for a CEO who, you know, it famously says, behind every decision we make as a customer. So we're so customer obsessed in that way. Um, but I would tell you that uh, it has everything to do with the fact that I look for what I should tune up and what I should tune down every single time I'm, I'm speaking and meeting with someone. And so the ability for me to do that has to do with in a given week, I get 50, 60, 70, 80 touch points of someone giving me feedback on, mm, I think you're a little off here. I think you're on there. I really hear this or I hear that. And I see the patterns and that's how I tune up and down. And so usually when I get off stage, people are like, oh my God, you were in our staff meeting last week, or you were sitting right there. And the, w the way that I do that is I don't let my position or my story sit stagnant over too long of a period of time or it gets out of touch. And so I try to stay two or three steps ahead and the way I do that is because of all the conversations and everything I'm consuming that I can find those sort of patterns in, in behaviors. Um, but I would say that I absolutely look through the lens of the customer. So when people will say to me, what should I be doing? I'm always like, tell me what your customers think you should be doing. When was the last time you actually 
went and met with a customer. So we have something in the States and it's also in, in Europe uh, called Undercover Boss. Okay. We have it here. Okay. So it's, I watch it. I never miss it. It's like, it's one of those things. Like I will watch reruns because it's, it, to me, it is the perfect example of where companies go wrong. So if anybody's listening to this, like if you want to just binge watch it on a Saturday before you go and do your executive offsite, like that's the thing to do. Because I always find it interesting that they'll spend six or seven minutes putting the CEO or executive in disguise right before they go out to see the people. And I'm always like, I don't know why they do that. Because no one would recognize them anyway, because they never leave their office. So they don't ever actually go on the delivery truck. They don't actually go and unpack, you know, the, the goods and put it out on the storefront. They don't actually try to realize that nothing's tagged when it shows up at the store. Or, you know, that, that the guys that are emptying the trash uh, actually have to pick it up and put it in the truck versus having a forklift. And you wonder why you have a spike in medical issues from your employee. Like it's get out, right? So Tom Peters, who wrote In Search of Excellence, was you know fantastic on management by wandering around, like wandering around and talking to the people. And so I feel that that's what I do. I just kind of wander around and I get to talk to a lot of very different people. And that's the way I see the hot spots because people will start saying the same thing around the globe in slightly different ways. But you know, people who who uh, who will read the book or meet with me, they'll say we're different, we're unique, we're really, it's very, we're super special. And I always say, I'm sure you're special, but you're not unique. If you're in a highly regulated industry, there's lots of things, and of course, I'm there's outliers. So don't hear people listening that she doesn't know what she's talking about. In the mean, 80%, you make stuff, you sell stuff. <laughs> You know, you sell nappies, you sell cars. You make stuff, you sell stuff, right? I'd say that describes <laughs> the vast majority of businesses. Okay, yeah. so then you say, I want to make it easy to sell stuff. And then I, and who's your customer? Who's buying nappies? Well, it used to be, well, it was the mom. Well, now it's, you know, that's not the, so you have to be smarter about how you do that. And, you know, or insurance or whatever it is you're selling. So at the end of the day, we're all more alike and that's why in Growth IQ, I picked 30 stories because I wanted to try to give a cross-section of examples from around the globe, different sizes, different industries, so people could see themselves in each of those stories. And going back to your very first question, um, the best way for me to tell the Growth IQ story was to not tell it, to actually let the brands tell the story for me. And I just strung the pearls together in a way that would be digestible. And for me, I wrote the book I'd want to read. I'm a visual listen learner, not a read learner. So I wanted to make the book very visual uh, and uh, make it a fun read versus a very heavy read and short burst stories because I can't pay attention for very long. So it very specifically was written uh, for that in mind. Like you can jump around or skip a story and you won't miss the gist of the book, where sometimes you'll read a book for 30 pages and you'll go, I'm not even sure what I read, right? Because it's so dense with so much great information that the author is forcing you to say, take the data, apply it to yourself. Figure out what it means. Figure out what it means to you. And, you know, so it was sort of like, here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you again. I'm going to underline some things I think you should find important. I'm going to sketch note the core of the story because visually that's how I learn. And then at the end, I'm going to say, and here's the key points you should take away. And so for me, it was like, 
I wish that school had been like that, right? Like that's how I learned. So going back to extrovert, type A, short attention span, like always moving, that I needed something that others like me <laughs> could use. I, I mean, one of the things that I that I talk about a lot is becoming the primary translator. Becoming the primary translator for your target market is one of the most influential things that you can do, and that's exactly what you've just described. You're talking to you're talking to a very specific type of person. You're talking to busy people with low bandwidths, and so you've gone out to the trends, to the case studies, to the ideas, and you've translated them in a way that will work for the people that you're trying to reach. Yeah, there was two. So, you know, uh, this was my first book. I, and I'm feeling today, because she's still a toddler, uh, that she may be my only, but we haven't decided yet, but we're sort of leaning towards she we'll may be. We'll see how much trouble she is. Yeah, so we, we're, we're leaning towards an only child. But, you know, after you write the book and, and you go to your inner circle, which are all massively cheerleaders for you, right? They think it's going to be fantastic. Well, now you have to sort of share it with the first ring beyond sort of the trusted network, right? And I sent the book to a handful of people, but the first person I sent it to, and I knew that that's who I had to send it to, uh, I sent it off and it was one of those things like, it was in my inbox draft for about a week. And then finally I just said, you just got to buck up, like hit send. So I hit send and it was one of those things where I just sat there and I went, oh my God, like what if he totally hates it? And I had met this person in 2000. So this was in 2000 and uh, beginning of 2018 that I'd said. So I'd known this person for a very long time. And uh, he was instrumental in telling me that I had this little superpower. And so I knew that he had to be the one that read it first. But when I say the name, it will all come together, right? So let me tell the story before I say the name, because if I say the name, it ruins the story, okay? So uh, we had met, uh, obviously, over, over the years. He'd always been someone I'd pinged when I wanted to sort of get my reality check. And so I said, you know, this is what I'm doing. Here's sort of the story. And he said, sounds fantastic. And I said, would you give me a quote? And he goes, well, let me tell you. He goes, I'll, I'll endorse it and give you a quote if I like it. So when you send it to me, if you're willing to take back whatever I say back, send it to me and I'll give you a quote. So I said, okay. So that's why I was sort of nervous in sending it off. So I sent but it what, off. What an incredible thing for somebody to say to you. Like, right? I'll give you that much I'll give you that much time, that much honesty, that much feedback. That's I mean, that's a gift just in itself. So then you say, but it's also someone you greatly admire, who is a tremendous influencer wrote the book in sort of the category I play in. And so you say, okay, Mr. Seth Godin, let me send this out to you. Okay. So it wasn't a day later. I get this email back one sentence. You nailed it. Oh, my heart just, I say dropped for you in a good way. And literally said, you, uh, you know, you, you really hit it out of the park. And hence, it's the cover quote on my book. Um, the second one uh, that I sent it to was my the gentleman who read uh, wrote the first business book I ever uh, read, which was In Search of Excellence. And Tom Peters is, you know, sort of the red bull of management and has written so many books, uh, academic and, you know, all those things. And 
you know, he took time. He was actually in New Zealand when he read the book because he comes here for a couple months out of the year and teaches. And so took him a little bit of time, you know, to, to read it and got back to me and said, I love this book, period, in all caps. So if you know anything about Tom Peters, he writes what he likes in caps. And then he said the 30 stories sort of flowed like a Mississippi River, right? So two things, right? It was like I could pass the academic test, right, and pass the muster for, from a thinker like Tom. And I passed the storytelling test, which was, which was Seth. And then the others that rounded it out were equally important, right? Because they all very specifically had a reason that if they got it and understood it and I nailed what I was trying to do, there were a few tweaks, obviously. But ultimately, um, you, you, if you're ever working on anything, is go to that network that plays, I call it sort of the symphony of my, they play a very specific instrument. And all of them coming together are my symphony. And so when I want a drummer, I go to that person. When I want a violinist, I go to this person, right? And so I had to go to my orchestra and say, does this work, right? And so uh, I would say that um, they have always told me my superpowers. Then I had to sort of say, okay, I have to believe it. And then now I have to try to action it in paper. And so it was a, it was an interesting journey for me. And I think that's a, a really powerful decision just in itself, whether you're writing a book, whether you're writing a blog, whether you're doing a podcast, whether you are doing a presentation to bring in different people that have different perspectives to give you their feedback. So somebody who, you know, is high energy to watch your presentation and go, actually, I switched off after five minutes because yeah. you, you didn't tell enough jokes. I wasn't in. Or somebody else who just knows their stats inside out and who can question your logic, like the, the architecture of your logic. I think that that's an amazing piece of advice for anybody out there who's creating anything to figure out your symphony of feedback. We're going we're gonna to kind of dip, dip from your journey as an influencer back into growth and then we're going to go dip back into your journey as an influencer Alrighty. again. Um, but let's go back to growth. So we've talked about, we've talked about how um, experience is the, is the new product, experience is the new economy. But you've also, you've also said a lot or spoken a lot about how speed Speed is the new currency. And that got me thinking specifically, I mean, let's look at a brand specifically with Nike. So, for example, you go into a Nike store now. And I was just talking to somebody who's come back from the States and he went into one New of the York. Their, yeah, exactly. Yep. The flagship store. And he said, I spent five hours in there. Yep. He said, I just spent five hours wandering around, designing a pair of shoes that I probably didn't need. Um, and that just seems so counterintuitive. You know, we're talking about, on the one hand, how attention spans have dropped, 10 seconds down to eight, apparently less than a goldfish. And then on the other hand, we're talking about how we're spending more time in and with brands than ever before from an experience standpoint. And the same with storytelling. We have no attention span for stories, yet we will binge watch something on Netflix for 48 hours. What's the distinction there? What makes us cross that boundary between impatient, give it to me now, and I'll spend five hours with you quite happily? Well, it, you may even say that same person who spent five hours in the Nike store in in New York also wants instantaneous in another situation. He is one of the most impatient people I know. Okay, so this is why I say, you know, that kind of the dichotomy of I'm an introvert, extrovert. You know, I'm a, I want it now and I'm a, I'll walk around for five hours. But the I want I want it for I'll walk around for five hours would have been over very quickly had he not been engaged. So his impatience would have bubbled up and he would have been like, I'm out. But he got engaged. But what's interesting about, specifically about Nike is 
Nike has done a couple of little things that I find fascinating, uh, one of which I put in the book. But ultimately, Nike swore, and I'm, you know, sort of I'm over-dramatizing this, but Nike swore they would never do a Nike store on Amazon because it would compete with the Nike stores. And at that point in time, which one of the points in the book is about context, during that time frame, there was lots of retailers, sports retailers in the United States. Since that time, all but like one or two brands has shut down. And so the sports authorities and, you know, that used to carry Nike, which was their sort of uh, a retail brick and mortar route to market are gone. So now you go, okay, well, what does Nike have to do? Well, Nike needs to now start to open their own retail or they need to <laughs> have a store on amazon.com. And so they chose to have a store on amazon.com and open experiential retail because the retail that was succeeding and growing was experience generated. So mostly in the beauty industry, someone like a Sephora as an example. And so they did multiple things. And so they said, look, if you want to buy online and you want to buy quickly. Get in, get out. Get in, get out. Go to Amazon now. We were never there before. There were Nike resellers there, but not Nike as a brand. So you could be a Nike reseller and sell. But what Nike then said was, we're going to go and clean up all that reseller, make sure that they do what we're supposed to do to protect the brand. Da, da, da. And now we're going to have a Nike store and you know on Amazon. And, and so now we're going to omni-channel. You could order online. You could pick it up at the store. You can, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do now. We're going to have these stores that are not just flat static stores in flagships so we can start to test this experiential because they were already doing custom shoe builds online. So then they just said, which I don't think they thought was going to take off the way it did, and it did. So then you said, well, how do we do this in a store, and how could we make it that someone comes and then they have to wait? But Tesla's proven that people will spend money and wait. So As long as the waiting is engaging in and of, its, in and of itself. In and of itself. And so you see brands start to blend this experiential and you know very overused term, sort of this omni-channel of on and offline, um, but the brands that are being successful, especially now as retail is really struggling to find their way, that uh, you've got to find a way to be much more engaging. Um, you don't have to you know, build a store like uh, the one in New York for Nike by any stretch, but how do you make the experience when someone walks into your little neighborhood store as a mom and pop store, small business, how do you make it so unique that they want to come back for that cup of coffee or they want to come back to you as their dentist or they want to come back to you for that haircut? You don't have to be everywhere. Just focus in on what you can control. Uh, and so... Someone I have, I've worked with and I have a lot of respect for, I don't know if you've ever heard, Johnny Cupcakes? Yes. Hey Johnny? Yeah, Johnny. And so... Love his T-shirts. Love his T-shirts. Love, love his whole thing. And he was saying that where he really had breakthrough was exactly that. Making his stores, he would have fans that would push out yes. fresh smells onto the street. Everything would be an experience for the customer. Yes. So it wasn't about the t You could buy the T-shirts online. Yes. It was about saying that you had been to the store. Yes. Let's just talk about taking that, taking recommendations, which we've already talked about. Um, and I know you've said before that Amazon, I think it was, 36% of Amazon's re revenue now comes from making recommendations to existing customers about other things that yeah, they should buy. Yeah, on .com, yes. Yeah. Taking that to another level and looking at partnerships with competitors. There's an example you used that I loved, which was, I think it was Amazon, Ford, and Starbucks. Just walk through that because it wasn't, you were talking about um, partnerships with competitors and I was kind of, I was nodding and I was thinking, yeah, I, I get that to, to an extent, but it wasn't until you told the story that I thought, oh, well, that just opens. 
Pandora's box of possibilities? So uh, the path is coopetition um, or it's partnership. So there's sort of slight differences. Coopetition might be like an airline loyalty program. You know, Qantas works with American Airlines. And so, you know, if you're flying from Australia to the States, you're going to go on Qantas. And then when you go in the States, you want to go from somewhere in the States to somewhere else in the States. Qantas is not going to fly you. You're going to want to pick up something. Well, the only way that worked is if competing airlines actually decided to work together and create these consortiums or alliance programs. And so that's coopetition, where you kind of work with someone you otherwise wouldn't, all to serve the customer better, because that's a better customer experience passing the bag from airline to airline and gate to gate and all that stuff had to be connected between competing airlines. So that's coopetition. Partnership is one plus one equals three, this sort of Starbucks, Ford, Amazon, where Ford really started to pivot and say, what's the in-car experience of the driver? So something like, is there 19 USB ports? <laughs> Like, who cares which about... Is, which is about five less than is necessary. Yeah, right? But do I need seven cup holders or would I just take two cup holders and 10 USB ports? Would I take, um, you know, a TV for the back seat, or would I take Wi-Fi for the car? Hmm. Right? Well, I'm driving. Don't really care about what <laughs> goes on in the back seat. I can hang an iPad over the, you know. So they started really thinking about the driver experience and... As natural language processing and voice commands, uh, especially in this new generation that never typed, and even messages like on the phone typing now is almost all voice. And so you have to, and you shouldn't be driving holding your phone anyway. So if you know that you're going to be, that voice is going to be the way to power your experience in the car, then you want to start to connect those things. And so they said, well, if we put Alexa in the car, and, uh, you know, where do people want to drive? Well, they want to drive to go get coffee from Starbucks. And so it, eventually it's going to get really smart. Like, hey, it's 2 o'clock, Tiffany. It's time for your chai latte. Do you want it? Oh, Alexa, I do. I do want my chai latte. Great. There's one two blocks away. Remember, this is a conversation, right? We're not quite there yet. But pretty soon... It, well, it's going to you know, be able to give me the map, go turn right, turn left, turn right, turn left. Or it's a driverless car. Or it's a driverless car, and it drives me there, right? But now it used to be, well, it used to be, let's go through the sort of transformation or this innovation cycle of, I used to pay with cash. No, then I paid with a Starbucks card. Then I paid with a Starbucks app. So that's the evolution. Now the next evolution is the car is my wallet, right? So because now it's Wi-Fi, and it's all connected, and Alexa notices, and, you know, they put an echo in the... Starbucks and then the, oh, everybody's talking to each other and so it delivers this great experience. So now you say, okay, I'm debating between the Ford and, you know, brand A and brand B and they're the same price. Remember the job that needs to be done. I need something to drive me <laughs> to and from work or whatever. Which car am I going to pick? It's, you know, right? It's job, job same. Car, same price point. Am I going to say, well, hold on a second. The Ford has Alexa built in, it's Wi-Fi ready, it has 10 USB ports, it has like, you know, so it gets four miles less to the gallon than that, like, I'm all in. And so I make the decision, going back to your point a few minutes ago, on the experience over the product, product being the car, experience being everything I can do in that car. And so Ford up-leveled way ahead of the much more expensive brands. If you look at the very expensive cars, they're less technically enabled. It's all about the engine, right? Where it's made. And, you know, they, they talk to you about the engine. And I'm like, 
it used to be how many cup holders, right? Now it's, <laughs> do you have USB ports? It's like, well, we not only have USB ports, we have a place to put your phone. We have a place to put your iPad in the back so that you don't have to have TVs on the seat anymore, you know, or whatever device you have. Ultimately, it's now selling an experience. The car is just a, you know, pun intended, Literally a vehicle. a vehicle. Yes, yes. And you're also looking at the friends that that car comes with. Well, you have this car. It comes with its friend, Starbucks. It comes with its friend, Alexa. It comes with... So you're almost buying the tribe that comes along with that particular product or that particular brand. Well, yeah, if you look at televisions now, right? I mean, everything is already there. If you were, you know, I used to, I used to run a division of Gateway Computers, um, which had the Holstein pattern boxes. And I remember it was like pre-installed on the computer was you know, McAfee and Symantec and, you know, uh, you know, this printer and this, you know, we, it was already pre-installed and those pre-installations, they would pay us. And so we almost made no money on the PC. We'd make all the money on the, on the rebate and everything on what was installed, pre-installed on the, on the computer. So think about that from a television today now, like you buy a smart TV, it's got Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and it. I mean, it's got every streaming service. It's got it. And you can just basically pick from it. That's all already the friends, the tribe, as you just described. And same thing with Ford now, you know, minus what we just described, you know, the interface uh, is touchscreen and you can get right to your playlists and you can get right to Spotify and you can get to all those things. That's all this pre-integrated partnerships in the background in order to improve the experience because they're trying to competitively differentiate beyond the car or beyond the TV or beyond the washing machine or beyond the refrigerator or beyond the, you know, just things becoming much more smart. If I'm a, if I was a CEO and there's a number of CEOs I know that, that are looking for the one thing or the, the trend or the, the strategy, and I was looking at this particular trend because I think it's, it's huge. What would they, What should the first move be? Would, what should they be paying attention to, looking for? What conversations should they be having with their exec team? What's yeah, so, move number one? Yeah, so move number one for me, and I'm going to go back to uh, what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, I would never answer that question. I might have answered that question five or six years ago by saying, this is what I think you should do. Now I don't do that anymore. Now I literally will say to them, what do your customers want? Who are your customers? What's going on in, who's your most profitable customers? Where do you acquire them? What industry are they in? What are their buying patterns? What I want to know about the customer, and then I can answer that question, which I didn't do that before. And that really has come over the last four or five years of, especially now where I work, that it's forced me to, you said, what's the place I start for those dials I'll turn up and down? It's all about this customer. And I think that people that give very quick answers or quick advice on what they think companies should be focused on, I am very quick to say, well, you definitely should focus on your customer. But some businesses will say, I was speaking with someone last night who literally says, you know, they're one of the largest in the world at what they do, and they only have really 120 customers. That's, once again, there's those outliers where they do know everything about that 120, right? But that's really about how do I sell more to that 120? But if you're everybody else where, um, tell me what your customers want, tell me what's important, what's, what's really a close adjacent market you could step into. So like 1-800-JUNK is an example. Well, you know, we haul people's junk away. When do people usually find all this junk? When they move. Well, so why don't we help them move? So we'll start a moving company and then we move them 
and then we haul away their junk. Well, okay, so now we move them, we haul away their junk, but then once we do that, like they usually need the house to be painted or the rental to be painted. So we're not only going to move you and haul away your junk, but we'll paint your place for you too. So that's very natural. So they'd already established you know, a, a great brand awareness, but people don't move very often. So I might sell to them once every five, six, seven years, whatever that is, but I sure could haul away their junk. I sure could help them paint. I sure could help them move. And so it's looking for those adjacencies on what your customer set actually wants. And by the way, what they'd give you permission to do. If 800 Junk said, we're going to get into the coffee business, people might go, I don't really get the connection. <laughs> Depends what coffee we're talking Correct. about. But, but yeah. but you, right? I did. I don't get the connection. So um, and one of the stories in the book, uh, Lego, was was they went too far away from what their brand maybe would have allowed them to do, and they weren't growing, and then they kind of snapped back and got more focused again, and they were growing leaps and bounds, and then five or six years later, lo and behold, they bloated again. And so they got away from growth again, and they just had to come back. They just, You just can pivot so far where you start stretching yourself too thin, and when they bounced back, they're back on growth again, uh, and they had one of their best quarters, depending on when this runs, but they had one of their best quarters, um, and they say that it's really all about now getting towards the experience and staying true to who they are, right, in the, in the bricks, like what's close to that, getting smart with them, going after new markets, a la girls playing with the Legos, you have adults that now play with it, there's competitions, and so just staying close to who they are and just getting very close to the, staying close to the core has allowed them new growth paths, but the only way they could do that was to know who their customers were. So opening up innovation labs and feedback loops and allowing people who use uh, what they what they build, right? Make stuff, sell stuff. The stuff you make, who uses it? How do they want to buy it? How do they want to use it? Then how do you keep them coming back for more? Let's jump back to you as an influencer again. Okay. You as an influencer. So well, the first time we met, you know, I was just amazed by your your journey in general. So you've you, you had the incredible work you did at Gardner, and you I know you won Thought Leadership Awards there, and then you've gone to Salesforce. Um, you speak, I think, I don't know how many times a year. A I lot. lose I lose track of <laughs> the amount of flights. And you've got the book, and you've got the podcast. And I remember that first conversation. You said, you know, I just went to my inner circle and and got people on my podcast. And then as we were talking, you know, names like Seth Godin and Dan Pink and Tom Peters, and I'm thinking, this, you know, just just went to my inner circle, and what have you learned? I mean, the, the essence of that journey is really stepping out from behind a brand, stepping into storytelling as a medium, um, stepping out as, as an influencer on a particular topic. What have you learned through that process? What's the number one thing that that's either given you or taught you? So I'd say this. I, 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 there's sort of two sides of the coin to the whole influencer thing. Like... Are you really your own brand? Can people really be their own brand? You work for a brand, you know, and I just don't get caught up in it. I used to get caught up in it. And then I had an opportunity to listen to someone speak. And, you know, one of the wonderful um, opportunities I get doing what I do is I do probably a hundred keynotes somewhere in the, in the world, you know, any given year. Um, is I get to listen to a lot of speakers. So those that captivate me, like I will close my laptop and I'm in, right? But they have about five or six minutes because I you know, can't pay attention very long. That's actually longer. <laughs> I would usually say so, you have two minutes, but five or six is generous. You've got to give them a second. So anyway, um, I was listening to the speaker and uh, she has a book out where it's really about determining your what makes you unique and different based on what other people say about you versus what you think about yourself. 
And it really had an impact on me. So, um, you know, especially with social media, if I'm on stage, uh, it's gotten, it's even gotten heavier now. But back when I was sort of going through this effort, it was probably eight years ago or so, uh, people would email me for copies of my presentation deck. So my deal was, my deck is not available. The only way you can get my deck is if you email me, here's my email address, and you need to give me feedback on what I said. Now, not like you were great. So I will literally say, you can't say you were terrible, you were great. Like it cannot be, you have to say like what you agreed with. More importantly, what didn't you agree with? What stood out? And they would give me really good feedback. And that's I would a, send an them incredible the, strategy. I would send them the deck, right? So I probably got, you know, a thousand, if not more, emails or LinkedIn notes, right, of people saying, here's what I liked, here's what I didn't like. So going back to how do I know what's the hot button and what's not the hot button, that's why I stayed on the pulse and just ahead of what was going on because I was getting constant real-time feedback on what I was presenting. And so I'm one of those people that I give the deck, like I'm giving a presentation this afternoon. I haven't actually built the deck. Like, <laughs> that's how late I usually am. Ultimately. But that is the product of experience as well, just to clarify yeah, yeah. for anybody listening. But, but you know, because I can move around the slides, right? It's just what story do I want to tell? How much time do I have? You know, and I go, okay. But so I would get all this feedback, but they would use words to describe what I did. And so I read her book. Sally Hogshead is, is the name. Right? I thought it might be Sally. Yeah, yeah. So it was Sally and I'm a maestro. So I went through this exercise and I picked out those words. So then I did her test, found out I was a maestro, picked, you know, went through the thousand emails, picked out all the words, people started using the word to me, like, you're really a thought leader, or you really influenced what I was doing. And you know, you did this, and you did that, instead of me saying, this is what I thought. Because I think self proclaimed is, you know, a slippery slope. So I got all that feedback. And then I actually like, I changed my Twitter, you know, what I said in the little bio of the Twitter, I changed what I said on LinkedIn, I used very specific words. I used words people used about me, like that superpower comment I made, like that, those are, those are sentences and words that people have given me that I have not given myself. And so I think that that's a great way for you to, as an individual, to figure out what is your superpower? Why do people invite you to meetings? Why do you get asked to speak? Why do you get invited to events or in front of a customer? Like, why is it you? What are the reasons? The only way you'll know that is if you ask people. So that's why that inner network is really important because you have to go and ask, why did you ask me to the meeting? What is it? What value do I bring? And then listen. And then you start hearing what people say and you can start to frame what is your, and I say this in air quotes, what is your brand? What is your superpower? That's what you double down on. Like I'm not known for certain things, not a lane I'm going to swim in. The things I'm known it for, double down where people have given me permission to talk about it and feel like I have a good, you know, I have something to steal from Bradley Cooper in A Star is Born. <laughs> Which I literally watched two nights ago. Amazing. You have to have something to say and people want to hear what you have to say. But you have to have something to say. Then you have to be interesting enough and what? Be a storyteller. Write the song people want to listen to that moves them, right? So you have to have something to say and then say, how do I say it in a way that gets people to lean in and believe and feel inspired to do something different? And you have to practice, but you have to figure out what is your superpower. No matter, I don't care if you're a brand, like I mean a corporate brand. I don't care if you're an individual contributor. I don't care if you're a customer service rep. I don't care if you're a sales rep. I don't care who you are. Like why 
Are you there? Why did they hire you? What is your superpower? Double click into it and then make that what you're known for. I think the concept of feedback in that is gold. You know, I get asked a lot about, you know, what either I don't know what to talk about or I don't know what to write an article about or I don't know which concept, out of all these concepts, I just don't know which one's going to resonate the most. And the answer is always what language do people feedback at you the most often? When you talk about something, what is the what is the thing that comes back at you where people say, when you said that one thing, it made it made all the difference in the world. And often it's not the thing that you find the most interesting, which I think is frustrating for a lot of people because you think this is the most interesting thing I have to offer and everybody else finds something else way more interesting. But listening to that feedback and building everything around the feedback is when you start to get massive momentum. Yeah, I would tell you that uh, there are times where I will give a presentation and I have a quote, you know, so I let's say there's 20 slides, whatever there is, and there's like four quote slides. And there are sometimes when I use that quote and you just, everyone's phone goes up, whip, 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 right, and they take a picture. That very same slide, that very same quote, the very next day, no one takes a picture. The day after, you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> you know, or I say a joke. The day before everyone laughed, today no one even, they sort of started to leave the room. Like, what is she talking about? So <laughs> the point is, you just have to be, find your way to be comfortable and confident in what you're talking about. And then very, and, you know, able to, and this, this is a skill you have to develop. This is not something sort of, you know, day one you sort of show up with, but how do you start to adjust on the fly when you're giving a presentation or if you're presenting in front of an executive team to get marketing dollars and something you thought was going to get them over the hurdle and give you the money falls flat, you better have a plan B. And if, if you have to be fast on your feet, um, and how do you get fast? Is it just practice? Do you get support? Do you, yes. like if I know I'm not fast enough on my feet, what would I do then? So, uh, you know, my, my, I have, I have, I have sort of two pieces of advice there. The first one I'd say is that become a student of whatever profession it is that you do. So I happen to be someone right now who speaks quite a bit. So that is my, that's what I do. So, you know, uh, Guy Kawasaki gave me some really fantastic advice maybe 10 years ago. Now, um, I was getting on stage. He was getting off stage. We went to rival high schools. We're from the same place. So Guy and I have a interesting love-hate relationship because in we're both from Hawaii. And in Hawaii, it's all about what high school you went to. So full stop. It tells you everything about the person. Anyway, so I'm getting on stage. He's getting off. He looks at me and he goes, hey, Bova, don't suck. Like, that was his piece of advice. I said, okay, fair enough. It's valid. So now every time I get on stage, I hear Guy Kawasaki say, hey, Bova, don't suck. Okay. So the goal is don't suck because people can make more money. They cannot make more time. And if you're going to take 45 minutes of their time, you want it to be worthwhile. You can't please everybody, but you want to be at least uh, giving enough to a majority of the audience that, that they felt it was a good use of their time. So I started watching, uh, well, getting my presentations recorded and I would do two things. One, I would watch it and not listen. And then I would listen and not watch. So did I talk too fast? Was I too fidgety? And I started to course correct. And I watched and I still watch them today. Like it just doesn't matter. You always should be honing your craft. So that's the first thing I'd say. So it comes from confidence and comes from practice. The second thing I'd say right behind that is you have to trust the process. There's sort of no speeding up being an expert or getting really good at something, it just takes practice. So, you know, um, and it's painful. It's like going to the gym. It's, you know, building confidence is like a, is like a muscle. You know, I think that 
I've been fortunate enough to feel like I have, uh, I don't have a job, I have a career and I, I get up every day doing what I love to do and meeting fantastic people and everyone pushes me to, to keep trying to be better and put out even better stuff. Um, and, you know, not all of it is a, is well received and that's okay. That means that I'm, you know, pushing and stretching and getting uncomfortable. And so that's what it's about. And playing the long game. Playing the long Play game. Play the long game. Yeah. You've said that you love industries today that where the common knowledge or the common rhetoric is that they're failing. Traditional industries like retail. If you were going to start a retail store, to put you on the spot, if you were going to start a retail store tomorrow, you had a change of career heart and you were like, I'm going to go into retail, where would you throw the majority of your focus? That's a good question. Uh, I would, um, well, I'd have to have something that people wanted to buy. That's for sure. Whatever it was. Um, but secondarily, I would say there are brands out there that are growing exponentially that have very much honed in on this experiential retail, like the Nike example you gave or Sephora or other brands that are starting to use augmented and virtual reality to allow people to try things on and do different things. Um, I would say I would not do it at all without technology. Um, from a acquisition of a customer, then nurturing the customer, then keeping uh, keeping it going. And even if it was like a ski shop or a surf shop, it's like, how do I create an app and create a community? And how do I get this sort of tribe mentality of getting everyone to talk about my brand on my behalf? And it would be all about the community. I would focus in on my community first, no matter what it was I was selling. Um, but I'm not sure I'd ever go into retail. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't imagine that. Funnily yeah, enough, yeah, I, I just, that. yeah, I, I, I was thinking as you were saying that, I don't think I've ever been asked that. I'm like, oh God, what would I sell? I'm not sure what I would. I don't know what I'd do to get into retail. Well, you know a lot about travel. You could sell suitcases. I, I could sell suitcases. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's, there's, that's a good one. Yeah. You also said that the the day that your Fitbit talks to your scales and locks your refrigerator, you're out. Yeah, and I added one more now. So, you know, in my home, I say when my scale talks to my Fitbit, locks my refrigerator, calls my car now, and it autonomously drives me to the gym, I'm officially out. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, I mean, you're behind a lot of closed doors. You're, you're hearing about a lot of tech that most of us wouldn't even be thinking about right now. Is there anything currently that makes you think if that happens, when that comes into being, I'm out, I'm, I'm going back to Hawaii, I'll, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving you all to it at this point? No, you know, I, I find the stuff that gets me really excited now is when technology is used to really level the playing field. Like I read this stat the other day um, that in uh, the African continent, that the opportunity for smartphones is still a multi, 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 multi billion dollar industry. And the majority that don't have it are women. And so the power of getting technology into their hands lifts up communities and families and gives them access to banking and, you know, or all the improvements we're doing in 3D printing for, um, for those that, that uh, have lost limbs or uh, helping with sight or hearing you know, and just bringing this sort of using technology to bring equality, no matter what it is, solving the housing crisis or water or pollution or like solving these big social issues. I am inspired every day when technology is used for things like that, like helping my shopping experience is a very first world problem. But I feel like technology has the opportunity to really give back so much. And one of the very last, uh, 
opportunities I had in, in my previous role, I was fortunate enough to do Steve Ballmer's very last public interview, and he was the CEO of Microsoft for many years. And uh, I asked him what he was um, really excited about. And he said, you know, we developed something a number of years ago that is just starting to come to fruition, which is uh, to allow people um, in the uh, sight-impaired uh, community communicate via video at the time via Skype because I can't see and so if someone is speaking how it translates into something that then they can it would then say to them what someone has said and it has created this connection between people who could not could not communicate and he goes that's what and I like looked at him when he said it and I was like yes like, that's what makes me excited. And so we're working on a lot of stuff around AI uh, at Salesforce. We've actually hired somebody who's um, the first, I think, of its kind on the ethical use of technology, especially around this, a lot of around AI and machine learning, to stay on the right side of using technology. But the things that gets me excited is how we can help level the playing field and solve these big, big issues because technology can help um, that's what makes me excited. And, and I would stay in it for the long haul if I could do things that would really make a difference on, on that side of it. I, th I think now I'm getting to a place where how do I, right now I feel like I'm giving back on the business side, but when do I switch that off and start to give back from a society and purpose side? And I think that, that tech just has and so the platform, much. The platform that you have built for your voice. Yeah, it's an incredible opportunity to do which that. Which I think that's why I did, you know, when I started writing the book, that the 10th path was not my 10th path. It was unconventional strategies, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And I started working at Salesforce, which gives 1% of its software away, 1% of its time to volunteer, and 1% of its revenue. And we've donated, I don't know, three and a half or four million volunteer hours. And we power 5,000 nonprofits. And we, I mean, we just, you know, we have thousands of companies that, uh, have modeled our 111 program. We, you know, all about the equality for all, and we sort of platformed that. And it was actually the reason I took this job. And so, you know, I think that that's what's inspiring now to me is how can I do more of that side of it? You know, UN 2030, sort of the girls of 2030, I've started doing some work with them and, and watching these girls who code and kids who code who. Interestingly enough, girls try to solve social problems and boy coders play, build games and things that are much more mechanical. And so you watch this entirely next generation of it's going to be crazy 20 years from now to see what this next generation does because they're so much more aware of, of what's going on in the rest of the world. But, you know, we all have first world problems, you know. Some people would love to have our bad days. So I think that that's what's really important for me now. Well, Tiffany, thank you. I would usually finish the podcast by asking, you know, what's the one thing that you want people to know? Um, but I think we started there. So <laughs> I'm not going to do that. There's been so many things, Great. so many things in there. A pleasure as always That's to see you. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas 
tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.